It's planting season, and it's not too late to make sure your crops grow up fed and happy. Regardless of your spring crop, Fed and Happy offers a variety of worm-casting solutions in liquid and solid form to supercharge your soil, your yields, and your profitability. For fast, vibrant germination and seedling growth, mix your seed with Fed and Happy's screened granular castings pre-drilling. The Fed and Happy liquid seed treat and extracts offer the ideal mix of soluble solids loaded with living beneficial biology, mycorrhizal fungi, humates, and more. The Fed and Happy small spreadable castings are ideal for fast, easy soil incorporation. The large offer long-term stability and soil growth. But you don't have to figure this out on your own. Just call 833-GO-WORMS to speak with our farm team experts for a fast turnaround on a custom solution for your needs. Fare better against pests, disease, drought, and other potential hazards this season with Fed and Happy Worm Castings. Visit FedandHappy.com for a healthy harvest and any lawn, garden, and tree care needs. Available for pickup and on-farm delivery. That's F-E-D-N-Happy.com. Or call 833-GO-WORMS. Happy planting. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's high time. We had a high time. Together. Together. Yes, it's a high time. We had a Hi y'all, I'm Joe, your host in Cannabis Lifestyle Guide. Today's podcast spotlights the power of resilience, the anthropology of pot, and how our current process of cannabis reform might be a form of revolution. Get ready to explore the cannabis industry patterns, behaviors, and norms, as well as the global attitudes around cannabis as medicine, with a bright and thoughtful Jessica Steinberg. Jessica is a PhD student at the University of Oxford, exploring the process of policymaking through the lens of cannabis legalization and commercialization. Her policy work takes place as an official delegate for cannabis-related meetings held at the United Nations and World Health Organization. She is the managing director of an international cannabis consultancy, The Global Sea, and co-founder of Entourage Network, a women's empowerment organization in the UK cultivating a space for women in the legal cannabis industry. Jessica is head of community at Ohana CBD, a plant-based self-care skincare company, and she speaks globally about her research and work, as well as the charity she founded when she was 13 years old, called Giveable Giggles. Seriously, I don't know when she sleeps. If you're a student of the universe like me, you're going to love this discussion. So smoke something that gets those wheels turning and settle in. It's time to get casually baked. I got the bottle of wine, the high dollar gun. I got the West Coast smoke, but I better just take one toe. Hey, Jess, how's it going? Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm good. So you're in the UK right now, right? 
Correct. I'm currently in Oxford. It's about an hour from London. Right on. So um, you're working on your PhD there, but that's a long way from home in Colorado. So tell me, what was that? What was that leap from Colorado to going to get your PhD at Oxford? Yeah. So funnily enough, I never thought I wanted to go get a postgrad degree, let alone a PhD. And I've been in the UK now for seven years. And the reason dates back to undergrad. So I applied to 14 American universities, got rejected from 10 of them in a day, almost didn't go to university at all, heard about St. Andrews through a newspaper article, and then ended up applying, had my little fairy tale story, went to St. Andrews studying anthropology and international relations. During that period of time, I studied abroad in China. And in that same period of time, my family moved from Chicago to Colorado in 2015. So this was right after Colorado went legal for adult use. And I stayed in Asia for a bit of backpacking and then went back to Scotland, hadn't seen my family for a year, needed a topic for my thesis in anthropology. And I connected a few dots that were important to me. So how can I maximize my time at home and find a topic to write a thesis about? Ended up being in Colorado, discovering cannabis at the time, and then really hitting the nail on the spot with the timing because there was no anthropologist really writing about the legal market because it didn't exist. And if it did exist, it was more so on the sociology side, which is a different methodology from anthropology. And so I tapped into that, which then led into applying to Oxford. Um, Again, it was a series of rejections that even encouraged me to consider applying. Went to Oxford for a master's Again, a series of rejections because I applied for the PhD program. I got rejected and it was during the time of Brexit. So quotas and funding was changing a bit. So I actually ended up dropping down from the master's using that first year of the PhD. And now I'm going into my fourth year, writing up, moving towards confirmation and nearing completion. So yeah, a very odd story to get here. <laughs> well, I love it so much. And I tell people all the time, like, I think I've, I've been rejected more than anyone else I know. And it makes you so resilient. Like, no, being rejected to me is like, yeah, no big deal today. You know, it's a Friday. Of course, I'm getting rejected. <laughs> yeah. It makes you so resilient and just so willing to lean into things. And so I love that. So your relationship with cannabis started when you started writing your thesis? Yeah, yeah. My academic relationship with cannabis, for sure. And one of the most incredible things for me during the process is I discovered the academic world, but then it always brought me back to my family. And one of my biggest values is family. So I get to uh, go back to Colorado, see my family, conduct field work. My college will pay for field work grants and things like that. And then likewise, my dad is still in the industry. And so we'll end up seeing each other at different conferences, not only in Colorado or the US, but around the world. And so my relationship to cannabis seems quite special in that regard, because it's brought the family together in a new way, a different topic that we can engage with at high holidays um, and different family uh, occasions like that. So it definitely started in an academic way and then moved into more of this personal passion and a professionalization within my own personal path as well. Yeah. And so whenever I said your relationship started and you said, well, yes, academically. So when did your personal relationship with cannabis start? Um, that would be back in high school. <laughs> and 
I actually, so I'm, I'm quite grateful for this one as well, because my brother and I, we explored the world of cannabis together. And I think my first interaction with it was with him. And so I always, he's one of my role models as well. So I always say, thank you so much for allowing me to see the plant in a way that was not really stigmatized um, and something that I was open to and open and safe. Because at that time, it wasn't legal in Illinois. That's only happened very, very recently. And so it was something that was yeah, unique. And to have a relationship with my brother that was positive, but also with the plant was something that not everybody experiences. Um, and now I would say the relationship with cannabis has switched a bit more. I'm very intentional with my use. And um, I think that has happened by way of the market, developing products, growing it, how they're developed and the technology, the sophistication and things like that. And when you have a foundation of any kind that's built on curiosity and, you know, reverence versus fear, it is going to change the trajectory of your relationship with it, which, you know, I think that goes into a lot of what you love with anthropology. And, you know, so you talk about the the patterns, behaviors, and norms within the cannabis industry, you know, they're very different for us than they are for the outsiders or they are for cohorts in, you know, parallel industries. So what are you finding in your research that's very interesting around that? Yeah. So let me give you a bit of a background around my research as well, because it's evolved throughout my time. And what I'm currently looking at now is the process of policymaking through the lens of cannabis legalization and commercialization. So more or less in tracing that process through the different stages from legalization, medicalization, normalization, commercialization, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, and I'm really looking at emerging markets and how something that is somewhat unfamiliar, but also familiar goes through that cycle, whether that is through normalization or through the capital investment, but really how quote unquote, informal actors. So people that aren't behind making laws or implementing the laws, people like you and I in the cannabis industry, or the investors behind different companies, how we're part of this movement and how that's changing. And so some of the patterns and norms, behaviors, even part, some of the language that happens within the industry we like to think that that's mirrored and reflected outside into greater society or into some other subsectors within society, whether that's lawmaking bodies or other agencies. But it oftentimes, one of my chapters about Colombia really focuses on this echo chamber effect and how when we go into a cannabis conference, it's almost like you're preaching to the already converted because we all believe in legalization. A lot of us know the different therapeutic values of the plant and things like that. And there, I think, is a disconnect between what we see as the mainstream culture that is accepting cannabis in the current state, whether it's legal or whatever part of the plant might be legalized. Let's say it's CBD in some parts of the world, like here in the UK. And there's a disconnect from that mainstream into what actually might be still considered a subculture, although it's transitioned from black market into a, a new form of illicit market. So the patterns, I, I think they're changing and time definitely has passed. But this perception of time is something that 
seems like it's going really fast, maybe because it's a small amount of time that we've been in the industry together. But at the same time, it's like for so many generations, there still has been stigmatization and behaviors and some of the etiquette around cannabis consumption also hasn't changed, which may be good, may be bad. But for example, passing a joint around in a circle and that being a very egalitarian thing, I don't think is a bad thing. <laughs> I think that's a good part of the norms and behaviors that have uh, continued on. And so, um, yeah, those, I think sometimes there's just this disconnect from the perception within the industry and then the reality that exists outside of it. And absolutely, I live that. That's why I created this show is because I am part of the cannabis bubble. But then when I go home to a state where cannabis isn't legal, I seem like a cannabis wizard to those people. They're like, what are you talking about? You can inhale this powder or you can chew on this tablet or let this sublingual dissolve under your tongue. Like, what are you talking about? And there is the idea that the language that we use in the industry, you know, moving from, you know, calling something a strain to trying to evolve it to cultivars, or instead of talking mm. about indica and sativa, we're talking about terpene profiles. Anybody outside of our bubble doesn't know what the fuck you're talking about. No. And this becomes really clear to me when I'm writing different chapters, I submit it to my supervisor. Her background is in Tibetan law. And she is an incredible anthropologist, really focused on socio-legal aspects of it, but knows nothing about cannabis. And so it's always so fascinating. She'll point out different things saying, what does CBG mean? What does a pitch deck mean in this context? What is exactly like a terpene profile? What's a flavonoid? Things like that. And she's like, it might be the common language of the industry, but that doesn't mean that everybody else knows that. And I think it's really humbling, actually, to kind of take that blindfold off and remove myself from the industry and say, if I was still in the everyday of outside of Colorado or another legal state, what would my vocabulary look like? And how would I engage in that education process? Because even now, I think most of my friends will know THC and CBD. But if I start saying things like, yeah, I have these new capsules from Colorado that have CBG, CBN, THCV, THCA, they're like, can you please break this down in English? And you've never studied a scientific topic. So what are you even going on about chemistry, Jessica? Or it's, even like, yeah. that's, that's too complicated. I'm out. I get it, that also, a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's see. One of the other fascinating things that I think you do is um, attending the cannabis-related meetings at the UN and the WHO as an ambassador. First of all, how does one become an ambassador for cannabis for the UN and WHO? So this, again, to earlier in our conversation, something about rejection just really inspires me. And I always think it's a blessing in disguise. So I knew that the UN has their annual meetings for the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, and that's every March. And I was planning my field work for the first year of the master's. And I was like, oh, it'd be quite interesting to go see what the cannabis conversation is like outside of the industry and into the UN. And as an international relations student, I was like, this is the gold. This is the White House for me. So I ended up reaching out to the UNODC. Um, they gave me an email of all the NGOs that have 
consultative status to be there. I narrowed it down to the drug policy related ones on the harm reduction side because there's a spectrum. Anyways, this was just more than 5,000. Um, I definitely sent out hundreds and hundreds of emails. Got no, 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 whatever. Loads of it. Half of these no's that did reply, I challenged in a bit, picked up the phone and called him. I was like, hi, I'm a PhD student at Oxford. I'm really curious to do some field work. Still, still no's. And then finally, one day I got this amazing email from someone that said, we've had a few delegates drop out. Would it be interesting coming on behalf of this civil society? I was like, yes, this is my golden ticket in. And then I, I, yeah, I basically networked around the room. And there's a youth coalition, part of the drug policy harm reduction side of uh, the Commission on Narcotic Drugs called Paradigma that comes, brings together all of the youth representatives. And they kind of became like my drug policy family. And we have a WhatsApp group and stuff like that. And so it was once I had that introduction, I navigated my way through. And that was more or less how I became an official delegate for the UN and the WHO. So it's been an incredible experience. <laughs> I can't stop smiling. I'm so proud of you. I love that you did that. And that's, you know, that really is the lesson for so many people is, you know, if you really, really want something, you just don't quit. You keep at it. You do that next, that next baby step, that next little thing, that next phone call, that next email. Way to go. Yeah. Thank you. And it's perseverance yeah. on an 11. <laughs> I really wanted it. And it's a funny thing, though, because I wanted it so badly just to go walk into the UN and be a delegate. And then it's been really fascinating data for my thesis as well. So it's my fi one of my final chapters before my conclusion. And I was so stoked to go. You walk in and then once you go there and you start to learn some of the bureaucracy and the informal conversations going on and everything that happens behind closed doors that's really out of your control, but then ends up getting written into these international treaties is incredibly frustrating. And it kind of loses its wow factor. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, then cool. And, and I know that sounds a bit like pretentious in a way, but it's, it's just a very frustrating place to be sometimes, especially when you're not representing a country that has the opportunity to vote on something and you're only civil society because civil society has been invited in recently. And it's something that the UN bodies are trying to engage and understand what that community connection interaction looks like. But there's still a big disconnect between NGOs that have field work going on and are helping uh, people that are using drugs and have those firsthand experiences. And then you have these country delegates making these decisions for people's lives where they have no context whatsoever. Um, and as an anthropologist that believes in going to the field to understand the context and seeing how you have these spectrum of ideas that don't connect, influencing daily lives around the world, it's it's very frustrating. <laughs> so when you say you get to represent, you know, civil society, is this like having you and having a house of representatives where there are, you know, citizens from these different countries involved, but you just, you're like there to be seen and not heard or how does that work? <laughs> kind of seen, but not heard to an extent, but there are opportunities for uh, formal 
statements to be made where NGOs will be invited to make a statement. But civil society is just a broad term, I guess, for any organization that would be, they have to receive consultative status. Um, so for example, I normally go on behalf of Students for Sensible Drug Policy and MAPS oftentimes will be there. The Beckley Foundation will be there. Um, well, if you could think of some like the big harm reduction ones, they're, they're around. Um, and I'll normally go for SSDP. Um, and then the Canadian SSCP also has a big chapter and will send some people. So, yeah. And sometimes they will make statements. Um, some of my colleagues have done that, but it's a rare occasion. And even if you make a statement on behalf of civil society, oftentimes decisions have already been made prior based on these internal discussions that have gone on for various reasons, whether it's financial or political, social, cultural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the current global attitude around cannabis? I mean, we know what it is in our little pockets of the world, but you know, if we're thinking about like this collective global attitude, how would you um, define that? I still think it's quite fragmented um, to bring it down back to a place of reality in the sense that I've used the word spectrum, but I think it is a good way to describe. So from the UN perspective, you have the Canadians, they're not really the US, Uruguay's up there, some other countries that have frameworks. Mexico is pretty supportive. On the flip side, you'll have Russia, Japan, China, um, some countries in the Middle East. And it's been a really tense time over the last few years because when I was at the WHO and they were working on the formal consultation for cannabis, that was really exciting because you could see where the medicine and the science was coming into it and the thought process from what they were saying was as objective and unbiased as possible. But then you go and bring that recommendation into the UN, they don't vote on it, it was delayed, things like that. There's various reasons as to why it was delayed as well. Um, but right now, I I don't think there is a general consensus or belief even that cannabis does have this medicinal or therapeutic value, despite all of the research. And that also, to an extent, comes down to some of the national bodies. So for example, in the UK, there's an organization called NICE that came out with um, recommendations and also somewhat of a consultation that didn't necessarily look at all of the research, but took a portion of it that made sense for them. We've seen agencies in the US do something similar. And so I think from a research perspective, that the science doesn't match up to where the policymakers are talking about it. The public doesn't fully understand the plan. So from a global perspective, although it might be a multi-billion dollar industry, let's say globally, and there is this global supply chain, there's a lot of tension within that. And I think that conflict needs to be focused on because this is going back to that pattern of change and how quickly we can move the industry forward and continue that movement. Um, And a lot of the, some of the recent conversations I've had actually about that is we're moving into a process of commercialization in certain parts of the world and places that have had legalization. But that sometimes has a consequence for certain countries within the supply chain. So I have an example in my thesis about 
some countries in Africa, Zimbabwe and Lesotho, where there was this land race and then we see cannabis coming in as an opportunity to be a non-exploitative market. So it's no longer similar to cacao and coffee and tobacco, but then it ends up kind of following the same patterns that have happened for histories before us. And so, yeah, I, I think those consequences need to be thought out before they take place. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. And that further adds to the fragmentation within the the global perception of cannabis. Yeah. And that actually, as you're saying that, I, I was just reminded to um, something I wrote down from an email that you sent me when we were first talking about this and about how your goal um, is to understand how our current process of reform may be a form of revolution. And, you know, and so you're saying this and you're like, okay, we keep falling into this same pattern. Is cannabis going to be the thing that finally, you know, breaks this construct? And I like yeah. that idea. That feels really <laughs> powerful. I mean, I've, throughout the whole time in the industry, that's something that has been said so many times at conferences that cannabis is this opportunity. It's a fresh industry and you, it's emerging. So you have the opportunity to shape it as you want. And then my lived experiences don't match that. And one prime example that I know you and I have talked about is on the female side. And I've been in a room of 100, the only female. And it's okay. I'm, I'm happy to be there, of course. But that's not right when it's just reflective of 20th century patterns rather than 21st century patterns, where we're actually challenging the emergence of an industry rather than just copying all the systems and structures that led us here. Why aren't we using technology that advances the industry further so that sectors take what we're setting as a precedence rather than us taking what the precedence already is? And I again, I'm going to use the word disconnect, but that's where the, the disconnect and the fragmentation of the industry comes. And the reform can be a revolution. And I think people believe it is a form of revolution and things are changing, but change doesn't necessarily mean a revolution will happen. Well, and a revolution means that we, the people, are coming together and like, saying we're done with this construct, we're done with big business being in charge of everything. Like this is a plant we can all grow in our backyard. Like this is this is our plant. This is nature's plant. This isn't big business and government's plant. And that means people have to stop wishing for cannabis change and reform and start being that change. And, um, you know, and I think that just brings us to the importance of community and the importance of shared experience. And I think women are the perfect people to usher that in. So when you are, you know, one woman with 99 men in a room, <laughs> we need to change that percentage like mightily and swiftly. Yeah. I, I think for me, it's always been about having that balance. So the opportunity is there equally. And so it doesn't mean having 99 women and, and one man, because again, that's imbalanced. So I, I think women within the cannabis industry, I actually think women have been really important for the process of reform and revolution. Because you think of some of the stories that hit the headlines. I know you spoke to Dr. Callie um, with epilepsy, 
And oftentimes they'll have these stories of mothers with children of epilepsy. And that's what captures the hearts through empathetic relationships and understandings and things like that. And so the women are oftentimes the face of the revolution or of the reform. But then for whatever reason, once that reform turns into a legal market, where are the women? (laughs) And how are they then treated? Or where is the value offered? And again, it's, it's not one for one. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement. And we can learn from other industries. We don't have to do it all by ourselves. We should learn from other industries. But at the same time, we can teach other industries that are not even, ex- that they don't even exist yet, that women and all forms of diversity, diversity should be part of it from the foreground, from the foundation of where the industry will grow from. Yeah. And it's, it's not only, the learning from other women and it's other cultures and it's from plant medicine itself. It's like listening to mama cannabis and like go back to the roots of everything and like build from there. When scientists are coming up with something, they go look at nature. Like how do fish move through the water? How, you know, how do these scales work, you know, to make something more aerodynamic? Like they look to nature for answers. And then we get frustrated and look to government to fix shit. Like, come on. Yeah, this is, it's so fascinating to see why science is at the forefront, yet nature is where we seek for those answers. And now people talk about going back to the plant medicine, going back to agriculture and things like that, that led to the scientific revolution and everything. But it's a strange one because people want to trust the science, but then they believe in the alternative as if nature is an alternative. (laughs) And I always find that so interesting because I've, I've been raised very spiritual and I like natural remedies and things like that. So supplements and things have been part of my life. But when I got into this, I had to learn so much more from a Western scientific perspective. And it's been interesting comparing that also to my time in China. Like I mentioned, I I was there. um, I speak a bit of Chinese and I've been fascinated with that culture and seeing what Chinese medicine offers and how it's this very holistic approach within an ecosystem. And I, I love that metaphor almost for the industry as well and for life more generally. Because if we just take one aspect of something that's going on, let's say there's an illness or a condition, and then you cover it up with some pills and, I don't know, a pharmaceutical substance of some sort, rather than getting to the root of it and seeing how the entire body is interacting, or for the metaphor, how all of the stakeholders in the industry are interacting and making the supply chain function and the reform move, I think that's where the substance is. But oftentimes it just gets lost at the surface level. Yeah. Well, and that is also because you have to believe in all of the modalities. You have to believe that every, you know, bit of the industry has value and they have a voice and something to add. So, you know, to, you know, where I know we're talking industry and also medicine. So my sister-in-law, she was like, you know, always against chemotherapy. It's poison, poison, poison. But Mm. then she was given a perspective shift to be able to say, oh, okay, I can make all of these different 
medicinal modalities work together. And she went from having stage four breast cancer to being cancer free in less than five months. And it's wow. just like you have, you know, if you're willing to allow everything to work together and believe in all of the parts, not believe in your part, but just could be like, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 come on. You know, you have to believe in the entire unit for it to like gracefully grow, I think. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm so happy that she's doing well now. And it's incredible that she found these, th what worked for her. Um, but I think to an extent, as, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, it's about curiosity and interest or acceptance to learn and think outside of the box or something that might be unfamiliar to you. How do you take that and make it familiar? And yeah, you definitely have to believe. And I think sometimes it's easier to stick in what's comfortable because you know it and it's just, you can flow through life like that, but that doesn't mean that you're excelling or challenging. And so when we, we move outside of that comfort zone and begin to ask the harder questions or say, why am I the only woman in this room? Or ask, why haven't I been to XYZ place? Or why isn't the brand growing like this? Things like that. Then I think that's where the really significant answers come along. And it's not easy because, again, that's where you're uncomfortable, but that's where the challenge forces you to grow. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as we speak of people growing, the Global C is a consultancy that you have, and we haven't really got a chance to talk about it. Is that, are you using the things that you're learning to help cannabis businesses grow? What is the Global C consultancy? Yeah, definitely. So thanks for asking. It's something that I don't often talk about. Because it started in 2018, um, again, like you said, following out of some of my research. And at this point, I've been doing research for about five years in the industry. So that was more of a legitimate channel to push projects and conversations through rather than it being pure academic brain drain that I've seen a lot of my colleagues in Oxford and elsewhere experience, unfortunately. So it, it kind of just took off without it being a plan. And I think that was the beauty of it, that it happened very organically. So I, we, we work with different companies and individuals to really contextualize where their business is at and where their business wants to go. So that might be strategy, insight, content, relationships, and working with some institutional banks, investors, publicly traded companies individuals, it really ranges. But what I will do is take more or less my anthropological method, um, both as a researcher, but as an individual too, because it's how I see the world, and then bring that into the scope with the research that I've conducted and then the research that needs to be conducted for that company and for the project in order to really get the ball moving and help them grow their business. So a lot of it will be about business development. Mm -hmm. And is this exclusively to the cannabis industry or is this in general? So right now it's most of the projects have been cannabis uh, with a little parentheses and hemp, depending on how you want to define cannabis in this conversation. So cannabis and hemp and pretty globally, which is the name for the global C, of course. So the C stands for Cannabis Consultancy Community Collaboration you name it, it's probably, if it starts with a C, it probably fits in. 
but uh, as my PhD has taught me, a lot of the research that I am doing is not exclusive to cannabis. It will go into, so I've worked on some tobacco products, um, cosmetics, uh, alcohol, things like that. I feel so like psychedelics is having its come up right now too. So you could probably add psychedelics to the mix. Yeah, that's ready in there. Exactly. I'm excited about that one. I think it's really interesting to see that early market emerging. But one person that I interviewed for a follow-up the other day, he was quite concerned about it because he's like, I understand why they're doing it. They're getting into the market early. They want to get a big whack of cash back, but they're making the same exact bet that they did on cannabis. And then they've left the cannabis industry. And so those companies are either being bought up or they're no longer operating or they're failing. And so he's worried that that is going to be another pattern that happens into the psychedelics movement. And that yet again, the doing good aspect or the giving back aspect will be covered up by the capitalistic drive to make an investment on it. So it'd be interesting to see how it pans out. And back to the conversation about the UN and WHO, that's definitely something that has been ongoing since I was there for the first time. But we'll see. I don't know how quickly it will change in terms of legislative uh, policies. Yeah. And I am curious to see how, like, as we get, you know, our footing with cannabis, does that mean the wheels are going to start turning faster? Or is it going to be that, you know, long, slow burn that we've had, you know, trying to get this, you know, cannabis legalization operational in a functional way for all of us. Right. And maybe like you said, the the whole move to go to towards plant medicine, maybe this will be a quote unquote awakening for people. And that no longer is only looking at psychedelics, plant medicine, we're looking at other forms of plant medicine and how how does that really shift in the public? It will, it will depend on where the trends come out and let's see what which celebrities maybe endorse it or which agencies can get behind it. So again, it will have to be a number of these factors and stakeholders that come together, I think. And there is a shift happening. There is a, a rise in the global consciousness and I believe, you know, plant medicine has a lot to do with it. So you know, I feel like every time I take a toke, I'm doing something good for the planet. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I think that's something so great about cannabis. But people always joke with me now. They're like, you did IR and anthro. So surely you talk about politics. Why don't you just go to the UN and give everybody a joint? They'd be so happy. I'm like, do you know what? If everyone, all the delegates smoked a joint together around the table, they'd get way more done. They wouldn't be any like lashing out, no informal BS going on behind the doors. So maybe that is the key. <laughs> it's cool, bro. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, you still have people that are saying really negative things and, and perpetuating the stigma about cannabis within those walls. And so it's quite difficult to break through. But I do agree. I think there is a consciousness that is shifting. And I hope even in the period that we're living in with COVID, I think that was also a wake-up call for people. And sometimes the the self-care, the wellness, what do I need to do for me during this time of uncertainty, that has come to the forefront. And so perhaps 2020 
will facilitate further shifts into the plant medicine, the consciousness awakening, and then further legalization maybe for cannabis. We'll see. And I really hope too that all of this isolation is really going to remind people how important community is. And that's the the last thing that we should talk about before we wrap up is the community of empowered women around cannabis that you're helping build in the UK with the Entourage Network. Tell me about that. Yes. Yeah, so Entourage is a women's empowerment network. We run online, well, currently online events once a month, different topics from policy to patients to investment, rules, regulations, branding, marketing really to create a space for people to come together to get the tools that they need in order to excel and then engage and collaborate with other people within the industry. We call it a women's network, but we invite men and we encourage men to be there because we want that dialogue to go back and forth and we want to be heard and we want to hear them. But it's um, it's been growing since 2018 when I founded it with Jasmine Thomas, who is the founder of a CBD skincare company called Ohana. And it was born out of necessity, like I said, being one of the only women in a room and creating a space where people could come together and know that there are other women. And then it moved from it being very grassroots, meaning our first event was 40 people maybe, and then moving into the hundreds and spaces like that. So it's it's empowering to see that growth and that change happen. And it's also encouraging because the community and the network that we have, we don't call it a sisterhood. I know a lot of other uh, groups of women around cannabis call it a sisterhood. Um, But sometimes it does feel like a family because you know that people have each other's back. Collaboration trumps competition. And you can just reach out to anyone and you know that they would have your back. And if something were to go wrong or you just want someone to be your cheerleader or you want to go out to coffee, go out to get a coffee with someone, all of that is within the realm. And that's definitely what the community is about. And I think having allies, whether it's female or male around you in that way is really important. Um, whether they're older or younger, it doesn't really matter. But just having that support is empowering. Absolutely. And if you're going to have a successful revolution, you need to have a plan. So getting together, collaborating with like-minded people and, you know, sharing what's working and what's not working and, you know, what your experience is and, you know, helping destigmatize all of the bullshit narratives. Like we, we need (laughs) each other to empower each other to get this shit done. I mean, it's time. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things that I miss because you, you can get a lot of that energy in person with other people. And then sometimes your screen is a barrier. And so one of the things that keeps coming back is the reason people are here is because they love it and they're passionate about it. And they love the community that has been created and they enjoy each other's company and learning from one another, like you've mentioned. So if that continues on, regardless of whatever challenges come forth, it seems like there's no greater obstacle. Yeah. And I will say one thing about these networking events is, you know, we no longer want our brains picked. You know, please don't ask to pick our brains. Please ask to hire us as consultants or to trade. 
maybe you have a skill set that I need. So let's trade knowledge or time or energy. That's one of the most important ways that I think we can empower our community is to honor each other's skill sets. Like you're getting paid to be yourself because you're a badass at doing the things that you do. And same for me. So don't pick our brains, hire us. Exactly. So if you're going to pick our brains, that means you value value the knowledge that's there. So yeah, (laughs) we'll be part of the team. (laughs) We'll be part of the smoke circle too. Exactly. (laughs) Jess, I want people to be able to reach out to you or follow you on social. And I know you have a shit ton of handles. Um, In the show notes, I'll put together a full bio so everybody can get all of the things. But where are you most active on social? My personal is J Stein, two N's, Stein, the Jewish way. And um, for Entourage, quite active on there. That's Entourage Network, LDN. And yeah, I'll leave it at those two for now. So we've got a networking site and your personal site. Yeah, that's good. And like I said, I'll include all the deets in the show notes. I believe that you wanted to um, offer some of your consultation services to the Casually Baked Tribe if if they do want to get a little kickstart. Yeah, so more than happy to do a 30-minute consultation, hear about where you are in your business, how I could possibly hop on and help with that development or add value. And it's really about that strategic value add for both ways. And then also there's a company that I work for with Jasmine, who I started Entourage with, which is Ohana. And we'd be more than happy to offer out a 20% discount code. So that would be Casually Baked 20. Get Casually Baked 20 Ohana products. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. It has been really fun hanging out. I know it is. I keep catching you UK gals on Friday afternoon. (laughs) But I love what you do. And it's an interesting perspective shift to talk about cannabis through the lens of anthropology. So thank you for doing that with me today. Thank you for holding the space to have that conversation. And yeah, it's been, it's always an honor to have a chance to talk with women that I would love to cheerlead on forever. So thank you. And it's been a pleasure to get you know, get to know you over the past few weeks as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for hanging out, Jess. Thanks. As a listener, if you find value in the content I create, I hope you'll consider becoming a podcast patron for as little as $5 per month. As a business owner, if your products or services align with the casually baked values you heard in this show today, perhaps you'd make an excellent show sponsor. Message me through the website at casuallybaked.com to inquire about advertising on the podcast. I've spent over 20 years in media and corporate storytelling, so I promise your message will be in good hands and baked right in. And if you found value in Jessica's perspective, based on her cannabis experiences around the globe, please share this podcast with a can of curious friend or family member. If you want to hear more from Jessica, head over to the Casually Baked YouTube channel to watch The Power of V, a discussion on women's equality. Next week, we're catching up with my buddy Jameson from Stewart Farms to discuss the current state of cannabis for our Canadian neighbors. Until then, stay connected with me on social. I'm at Casually Baked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
And if you're so moved, please rate and review Casually Baked on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It helps other canna-curious folks like me and you find this highly responsible cannabis content. Together, let's puff puff, pass it on. Casually Baked, the podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and mixing performed by Q9 Productions. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.